We are, we are familiar with the uh, great discipleship mandate in Matthew 28. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to turn there to that passage, very well-known passage to us all. Matthew chapter 28. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's been an issue of authority. And in chapter 21, there's a, there was a dispute over authority. The chief priests and the elders came to him and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus asked them, I will ask you one thing, which, which if you tell me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? They began reasoning among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we will, we fear the people for they all regard John as a prophet. In answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. You know, this, this, this is just the, the worst kind of spiritual dissembling. This is the way a, a, a politician uh, would, would, in the worst case, would deal with truth, with truth by polls and focus groups. Uh, but their answer exposes them as having no spiritual authority. And Jesus says, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If they reject God's revelation in John, they're going to reject God's revelation in Jesus. So Jesus says at the end of the gospel, I mean, the idea of authority goes all the way through that gospel, gospel of Matthew. And at the end of the gospel in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them and said, all what has been given to me? All authority, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. No other place that there is. So all authority is mine. And based on the fact of God's absolute sovereign control and authority, based on that comes this mandate. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Let me unpack a couple of things here. And this is a, I, I know this is a familiar passage and, I'm, and I'm, 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 I'm preaching to the choir here, but the choir sometimes needs to be reminded. I need to be reminded of some of these basic truths. Grammatically, there is only one imperative and that imperative is not the word go. The, in, in the Greek language, the one imperative is this. Make disciples. That's it. Make disciples. And the other three verbs are participles. And, and they could be translated, going therefore, make disciples. Or as you go, make disciples. Baptizing, teaching. So going, baptizing, teaching. All around the idea of making disciples. And of course the word go precedes making disciples because first you have to go to make contact with those who will be saved. And then the other two are after making disciples because those are things that happen after one comes to Jesus and is committed to walk with him, being baptized and receiving the teaching, observing all that I commanded you, teaching them to observe all that I command you. So what's very clear here is that this mandate is given to every believer. Every believer is a missionary, not just overseas. There is no time, no place, anywhere that any follower of Jesus is exempt 
from this mandate. We are to be his witnesses anywhere, everywhere, all the time, either speaking the gospel or living the gospel. Uh, When you think about that, it catches you up short. How are we doing at implementing the mandate? Baptist theologian Paul Powell wrote, quote, many churches today remind me of a laboring crew trying to gather in a harvest while they sit in the tool shed. They go to the tool shed every Sunday and they study bigger and better methods of agriculture. They sharpen their hoes, they grease their trackers, tractors, and then they get up and go home. Then they come back that evening, study bigger and better methods of agriculture, sharpen their hoes, grease their tractors and go home again. They come back Wednesday night and study again bigger and better methods of agriculture, sharpen their hoes, grease their tractors, and get up and go home. They do this week in and week out, year in and year out, but nobody ever goes out into the fields to gather the harvest. Now, this may sound heretical, but the purpose of the church is not to hold evangelistic meetings. In the New Testament, the church gathered for teaching, for mutual encouragement, for worship, and then they scattered out into the community to do what? To make disciples, to evangelize, to bring people into a saving knowledge of 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ, to tell people who he is, what he has done for them, and how they can receive forgiveness of sins through faith in him as the unique son of God. And, And we do, in our church worship services, want to make sure that We give the gospel clearly, but there's only one place in the New Testament where it's even mentioned as a hypothetical possibility that an unbeliever might actually attend a Christian worship service. And that passage is a warning about speaking in tongues. So that's the only place it occurs throughout the New Testament. Believers come together to be equipped for living the gospel and then go out to make disciples, which includes evangelism. Every person here is, and and of course we do give the gospel. We do want to make sure that that is always clear. But every person here is called to a very specific mission field. And for now, part of my mission field, Gary Phillips, is a field of 10 houses and the people who live in those houses on Cove Lane. That's part of my mission field. And I have to live in awareness of that fact in all of my interactions with my neighbors. That's part of my mission field. You have a mission field like that and other mission fields that are a part of the circles in which God has placed us. This is a mission Sunday. So what I've done is I've picked a few missions passages for us to examine. Usually here at our church, 99% of the time, we have uh, expository teaching, which is verse by verse, book by book of the Bible, through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter. But today we're going to be focusing on a topic, and that topic is missions. Um, But we'll, we'll also look at a couple of passages that you may not have thought of as missions passages. Now, we've already said, first of all, that we have a mandate in Matthew 18, uh, 28, rather 18 through 20, and that is to make disciples, make disciples, not make decisions, make disciples. Uh, The point is not to have someone go down front. The point is for someone to be saved and to begin the journey. 
having someone saved is not the end of the journey. You are born again and then you grow. And, And the whole purpose of making disciples is to become more like Jesus Christ. So we have a mandate. Make disciples, which includes evangelism, but that's a, really a starting point. Second, we have a mission field <clears throat> already in place for every one of us, and we don't have to agonize what that is. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Book of Acts chapter 1. You're probably well familiar with Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but I'm going to start reading in verse 4. Gathering them together, this is Jesus in his last time to have contact with the disciples before he ascended. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Why would they want to leave Jerusalem? Well, they weren't from Jerusalem. They were all from Galilee, up north. Um, And, by the way, Jerusalem was not that safe for them right now. So, but Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem yet. Wait But to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard of from me. In the upper room, Jesus talked to the disciples about how he was going to send the Holy Spirit. I can only be with you, but he will be in you. He's going to be your power supply. So they've heard of him from me. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They were awaiting that messianic kingdom yet to be established. And Jesus doesn't say, no, that's that's totally wrong. He just says, it's not right now. It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the father has fixed by his own authority. But here's what you can know. Verse eight. This is crucial. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. That was Jesus' last word to them, and then he ascended. Now, his final word from them is, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. The Greek word for witnesses is martus. We get our word martyr from it. You will be my martyrs. Doesn't mean necessarily someone who dies, but someone who is willing to live his life for Jesus to the end. And many of them did die. That is how they died, for their faith. The word witnesses, this word, occurs 39 times in the book of Acts. That's our job. We are to be his witnesses. This is what the crucial information, his last words to us before he ascends to the Father. And he doesn't say, would you, would you please consider being? Do you... Do you mind if I call you as witnesses? Whether or not you want to be, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are his witnesses. And not only that, where are we to be witnesses? And the answer gives us the table of contents of the book of Acts. Jerusalem and the ministry in Jerusalem takes place in Acts 1 through 7. Judea and Samaria... We've gone from a city, Jerusalem, now to provinces, Judea and Samaria. And the ministry to Judea and Samaria unfolds in Acts 9 through 12. uh, Or rather, 8 through 12. And then to the uttermost part of the earth. Guess what starts in chapter 13? The first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul to the uttermost part of the earth. So that's the table of contents of the book of Acts. 
First of all, in Jerusalem, you begin where you are. But Jerusalem killed Jesus. Why would they want to stay there? They were not they were all Galileans. Jesus even said that they were guilty of the blood of the prophets in Matthew 23. That's true. But Jesus wept over Jerusalem and loved Jerusalem. And he died for his people in Jerusalem. The second aspect is Judea and Samaria. The concentric circles go out. First of all, Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria. Jerusalem is in the province of Judea. And Samaria is the province just north of that. Judea was was actually the home of the only non-Galilean disciple. There was only one non-Galilean disciple. And he was no longer with them at this time. Do you know who that was? Judas. That's right. So we're going to go where Judas was, right? Judas' home, home turf. And, and Samaria was, was filled with people who were just hostile against the Jews from the standpoint of these Jewish apostles. Do you remember at one point when, in, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus was going to go through a Samaritan village, and the village would not let him pass through because they were Jews. You remember what happened? James and John, the loving disciples, no, I'm sorry, the sons of thunder, said to Jesus, Lord, would you like for us to call down fire from heaven and burn them up? And Jesus said, no. No. We'll go on around. And they did. But, you know, the, the, the disciples have an attitude about Samaria. But Jesus loved the Samaritans. And you read in John 4, before he even spoke to the Samaritan woman, he said he was impelled to go through Samaria. To travel through there. The Jews always avoided that province. They'd go across the Jordan River and go north and then cross over into Galilee, totally avoiding that province. Jesus said, no, I'm going through there. And by the way, two years after Jesus ascended, two years later, Acts 1 through 7 ends and chapter 8, verse 1 begins the ministry in Samaria. And Judea and, to, and, and then extends on beyond that. So... Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. What's the remotest part of the earth? Well, that's populated not just by Samaritan. That's populated by Gentiles. And the Jews hated the Gentiles. But Jesus died for the Gentiles. God's plan was always global. And by the end of the book of Acts, the church will be, the church will be in Rome, planted there, flourishing And in Rome, the church father Irenaeus said, quote, all meet from every quarter. That is not just the remotest part of the empire, but the remotest part of the earth. And that's the unfolding of the book of Acts. But this is where, here's the deal. You will be, not would you be, but you will be my witnesses. Question, when do you start? Answer, now. Question, where do you start? Answer, where you are, right? Your Jerusalem, your family, your work, your school, your friends, your neighbors. That's your Jerusalem. And I have a, I have a, a, a project for you. I want you to begin to, to pray for two, about two things. Pray for opportunities to witness to your neighbors. And if you have unsaved family members, pray for opportunities to witness to them. Start praying that actively to get that before your mind. And then 
Secondly, pray for boldness to take advantage of those opportunities when they open up because they will. They will. So that's your Jerusalem. Now, the urgency of this has to do with the fact that the time for people to hear and to be saved is limited. It will run out, especially for individuals. The next passage may not sound like a missionary passage, but it definitely speaks to missions. You remember when Jesus told the story about the rich man who died and from hell begged for Lazarus to be restored to life and to go tell his brothers so that they would not come to this place of torment. Luke 16 says, and he said to him, to Abraham, I beg you, father, that you will send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they may so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Charles Darwin, the, the father of evolution, wrote this in his autobiography, quote, I can I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, my brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished, unquote. So Christianity could not be true because it contains the doctrine of hell. This is the same argument that Bertrand Russell used, that Jesus was not a good man. Why? Because Jesus believed in hell. So the criterion for truth is if I like it, and if it agrees with me, then it can be true. If I don't like it, and if I disagree with it, then it can't be true. Look, I believe the statement of the rich man in Luke 16 is an appalling, horrific statement of lostness. If you and I could hear the voice of people in eternity right now who are lost and realize how important it is to get the gospel out, that would change our hearts. Now, I don't take the story in Luke 16 as normative. It's a parable. I don't take it as normative for associations between heaven and hell. Plus, I doubt that people in hell have wonderful motives. And that's not Jesus's point. But the very fact of eternal judgment should impel us, constrain us, motivate us to share the gospel with people we love and even with people we hate so that they would be saved. There is one thing that you and I can do now that we will not be able to do in heaven, and that is share the gospel with lost people. We can do that now. Whether they're our loved ones, our friends, our co-workers, or even our enemies. Hebrews 4, 7 explicitly states that time will run out. Quoting Psalm 50, 95, the text says, He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as he had said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why? Well, the fourth point, the world has no answers to humanity's lostness. As Peter said to Jesus in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom will we go? You are the one that has words of eternal life. I love that statement. God, there's no plan B. There's only plan A. And it's an amazing plan. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Now, I, I've always been impressed by the statement in Acts 16, verse 9. 
uh, and, and many people don't think this explicitly as a missions passage because Paul already was on a missionary journey when God revealed his will to him. But here's what happened. God sent a vision to Paul while he was on the coast of Troas on, on the border of the Aegean Sea. He sent him a vision of a Gentile man dressed in European clothing, a man from Macedonia who beseeched him, quote, come over to Macedonia and help us. This statement, this plea was a clear statement sent from God of cultural bankruptcy. It was an admission that all of those things that were the greatest things in Greek and Roman art, Greek and Roman law, Greek and Roman literature, Greek and Roman culture, Greek and Roman philosophy, Greek and Roman drama. All, and there were wonderful things. But those things do not satisfy and are inadequate for the needs of the soul. Today, our culture is far more bankrupt than the Greek and Roman culture was then, at least in terms of philosophy and ideas. I mean, the common view of truth today in American universities is called postmodernism, uh, a fancy word which basically teaches that there is no absolute truth. There's only my truth, what's true for me and what's right for me. There's no right or wrong in the universe. It's what's right for me. There's no purpose and meaning. There's just my purpose, my meaning that I create for myself. Well, what about the truths of history? Well, there are no truths of history. We deconstruct history. What about the truths of the future? There's no guaranteed future. So there's no past. There's no future. There's just now. So live for now. The good news here is that one of the characteristics that educators have noticed about people raised in this postmodern generation is that they are looking for heroes who are authentic. They are looking for people to live out being witnesses, in other words. They are looking for people that they admire, that they want to be like. And then, after they identify those people, they want to know what makes you tick. What is it that you believe that makes you different? Why do you live this way? Or, put differently, there are people all around us saying, come over and help us. Come live alongside of us. Let us see the genuineness and the authenticity of the way that you live. And they are all around us. They are people in my neighborhood. They are people in yours. They are people that you work with. People that you go to school with. And, and they may not know that what they need is the gospel, but you do. You know that. Now, God has clearly called us all to missions. And I know that there are many people sitting here thinking, well, I'm not able to do that, Gary. I'm not adequate. I'm not smart enough. I get flustered. My neighbors have everything and they don't feel like they need anything. They're just not interested and on and on and on. But, but first, you don't know what's going on in the hearts of your neighbors. There are people all around you who are deeply hurting with things that you are totally unaware of. That is absolutely true. And, and second, if you think you're inadequate... Good, you are. But, and here's the fifth point, God has given us his divine enablement. And this is crucial. There is a, a, a missions mandate that should well up from, from within us. And, and it should happen within our souls simply because the Holy Spirit indwells us. 
Do you remember in Acts 1.8? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So wait for that. And then when you are now then inhabited by the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses. You don't do this alone. He sends you. In fact, I want you to think about this. God the Father sent Jesus into the world. Right? John chapter 3. God the Father and God the Son sent the Holy Spirit into the world. John 14 through 16, Acts 1, other passages. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit send the church into the world. Matthew 28, Acts 1, and other passages. So we have an astonishing commission from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And Acts 1, the book of Acts is really quite specific about the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit's role in this. I want to ask you a loaded question. What is the key evidence for the filling of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts? I'm going to ask it again. Don't answer out loud. But what is the key evidence for the filling of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts? I've collected and examined all the texts from the book of Acts where Christians in the early church, in the, where the term is used, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? And it flows directly out of the statement in Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be my witnesses. So bear with me while I read to you from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verses 4 and 14. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And what were they, what were they speaking? About the gospel, because people were hearing that in their own languages. Acts 2.14. Peter, who was just filled with the Holy Spirit, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them. What does he declare to them? The gospel. He witnesses. Acts 4.8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. And he tells them about Jesus. Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness, the gospel. Uh, Acts 6.3. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. Acts 6, 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Acts 7. Being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen said. And Stephen taught them Old Testament survey and showed how it all pointed to Jesus. He was witnessing. Acts 9, 17. Ananias departed and entered the house after laying his hands on Paul, uh, on, on him, that is Paul, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 20, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the son of God, being filled, proclaiming Jesus. Acts eleven twenty four. he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord ministry of Barnabas, filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 13, 9. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said. Verse thir- uh, Acts thirteen fifty two, And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what is the key evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts? Witnessing. Witnessing. Witnessing of Jesus. If the Holy Spirit indwells you and you're listening to his promptings, if you're filled with the Spirit, you will be telling people about Jesus. And I think we can turn this around. If you're not telling people about Jesus, if you're not interested in doing that, if that's not a part of what's bubbling up within your soul, then from the pattern laid forth in the book of Acts, I would say with authority that the key evidence of the fullness of the Holy Spirit is absent from your life. And you need to do some soul searching. There's so many missions passages that we could consider, and I've, I've chosen only a few. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the passages that I chose contain mandates from above us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit giving us the mandate. Contain a mandate from below us, the rich man. Command, have mandates from the culture around us. Come to Macedonia and help us. And a mandate from within us, the Holy Spirit. We are just every which direction inundated with the mandate for missions. There's some things I want to say to have to take away from this very briefly Four action steps. First of all, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a missionary. Just to remind you, you're a missionary in your business, in your school, in your family, and your consistent life as you witness for Jesus, is long-term missionary service. Don't ever diminish it by thinking it's anything less. If you're in a job that you hate, you're working alongside people that hate their, the same job, your work there is a witness to them. Here's a plan. First, you expose people to the fact that you're a Christian. And I don't mean in an obnoxious way but with grace and gentleness, not being arrogant, not being pretentious. But you expose people to the fact that you're a Christian. The Lord is a part of your conversation. And then secondly, your unsaved friends, your co-workers, your classmates will observe your life to see if you're real or if you're fake. When I talk to people, what comes naturally to my vocabulary? Now, I'm, I'm not saying that we strategize to try to shoehorn the gospel or some gospel phrase wherever I can. I'm not talking about being awkward or unnatural, but it should be natural for me to speak about the Lord with my wife, with my children, with my family, uh, in the workplace. Uh, You know, just saying, you know, I I thank the Lord for a a great weekend or whatever it might be. It doesn't have to be shoehorned in. It's just part of the way that you think and it comes out in the way that you speak. So it's a matter of who you are. Paul said in Philippians 4, 5, Let your sweet reasonableness be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, if you're in a job situation, like, for example, an extreme situation in the military, uh, where people in authority over are not allowed to say certain things, that's a I I recognize that that is a a a a difficult situation. But very few of us here are in those circumstances where HR would get all over you if you witness in your words. But if you if if you if that is prohibited where you work, okay, your employer has bought your time. That's fine. Good. 
But your life is still a witness. And outside of work, your words are still a witness. So that people ask you what is different, why you have peace, why you have something different. Verse, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 3, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience. So first, you are a missionary. Second, give to missions. Giving of our resources is a very practical and tangible way to make an eternal investment in the kingdom of God because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. I'd love for us to reach a time when, when, when in fact, one of the goals for us, for missions, we'd love to reach a point where we could just have missionary families that we support come back from the field on furlough and because we support them at such a hefty amount, they can relax instead of having to spend all their time traveling around. They can just relax and rest and, and just be here uh, and, and, and revitalize. Years ago, I made this statement to you, quote, I found this quote, I would, I would love for us to have more of our budget go to missions than it goes to salaries and paying off our building. Uh, that was a part of my um, report to you, a pastoral report to you quite a few years ago. Uh, so I would love for us to have more of our budget go to missions than goes to salaries and paying off the building. I can document to you that we are halfway there. Uh, the, uh, the building is paid off. Our missions budget increases year by year. And, uh, uh, but let me say this. The truth is, and uh, yeah, the truth is, so many in our church support missionaries individually so that it's not through the church budget. So many here support missionaries individually that my guess is we are there. And I, I just rejoice in that. And, and let me tell you, yeah, I'm the pastor here. And yeah, I look at the budget and the elders do too. We don't worry about it. And when somebody wants to give not through the church so that it's not a part of the church budget, great. Great. That may, maybe that will help you be more in, immediately involved with the missionaries that, that you support. Your heart is directly engaged with them. It doesn't have to be through us. can be. That's fine. But give to missions. Third, be open to God's call on your life for vocational missionary service. I'd, I'd love to see our church decimated because of the missionaries that we send out. Whether in foreign missions or, or home missions, we have both. Speaking of home missions, some mission fields are harder than others. Uh, for example, there's one field where you face malaria, four kinds of deadly snakes, scorpions, crocodiles, alligators, three species of poisonous spiders, sharks, hurricanes, one of the highest crime rates in the world, number one place in deaths by lightning, and 11th, leading in deaths due to skin cancer. That's the mission field known as Florida. <laughs> Not all mission fields are overseas. But also, I, I love when we send out our short-term trips, uh, our, our one-month trips, three-month trip. I'd love for us to do that, a year trip. Even short trips to visit, visit our missionaries are valuable to them because they, they'd love to see you as long as we don't wear them out while we're there. Well, they have to make all kinds of arrangements for us. You have to be aware of that. 
So we, we have folks planning to visit the Hattons soon. And uh, others who are planning to visit the Petrus in Greece soon. So be open to God's call for missionary service or missionary visitation. And finally, pray for our missionaries. They need and desperately want your prayers. And when you pray for missions, something happens within you. You become a global Christian. You become one who thinks in terms of Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. And at this point, I'm going to call up the elders now and the members of the REACH team who are in town and come forward to a prayer for commissioning. They, they leave next Sunday morning, but they leave before the service. So we want to pray over them and pray over their trip.